If you would, grab a Bible and open it with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 is where we'll be spending our time in this part of our worship this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Good to see you this morning. We've had a good crowd. Good morning. Good morning of worship to God. I want to remind you before I begin about uh, the theme that we have for the year. We're studying in the unstoppable kingdom this year. And I want to remind you about the readings for this week. We're sending out daily devotionals where we have a reading and a short devotional every weekday. And if you are not on that email list, please let us know. In fact, we have a number of people that listen to these lessons online or watch the videos online. I want you to know that if you're interested in being on that email list, you can sign up at our website, fairviewparkchurch.com, and you can sign up under the newsletters tab. If you have any interest in that, we'd like for you to let us know about that because that's a work we're doing that we're very excited about as we study through the book of Acts this year. So I wanted to remind you about that. And I want to say a word to our visitors. We are so thankful that you are here. We always want you to know that you are welcome here. And if there is a way we can help you to know something about God, something about this church, if you have a burden on your heart that we can help you with, please let us know about that. I want to start by reading Philippians 3 and verse 7. The text says, Philippians 3 and verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. At the heart of this text is a change that happens in Paul. You can see it there. He says, what I counted as gain, I decided to count as loss for Christ. Now, from one perspective, we might say that Paul converted. He changed his beliefs from one belief system to another. But he sees it as a fundamental reordering of his life, a paradigm shift. He sees this as he finally got clarity about his life. And one way this text describes that is with the metaphor of running. He's going to talk about how he runs after certain things because of this change that's happened in him. And you guys know I like running. There's a man named Eliud Kipchoge who is a Kenyan runner, who broke the world record of the marathon a couple of months ago at the Berlin Marathon. He ran over a minute faster than the previous world record. In fact, the way these elite marathoners do this, they get guys that go out and pace them at a certain pace. But of course, those guys can't run the whole race at world record pace, so they have to drop out. Well, he actually was running so fast that two of his pacers had to quit early because he was faster than they were. When they interviewed Kipchoge after the race, he said this, In Kenya, we say, never chase two rabbits. My rabbit, he said, has been the world record at Berlin. I tell you, that picture has stuck with me. Don't chase two rabbits. It's easy to see why. If you chase two rabbits, at some point, they're going to go in different directions. And you're either going to be left chasing just one, or more than likely, You're not going to catch either one of them. And so what he is saying in the context of running is you've got to go after one goal with all you've got. Chase that one rabbit. But if your loyalty, your interest is divided into two rabbits, you're not going to catch either one. That's what Paul is saying here. In fact, I found that a great summary for Paul's focus in this text. Look down in verse 13 of Philippians 3. Paul says, brothers, I do not... uh, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
He says, I don't chase two things at once. I'm straining forward toward one thing. One thing I do. Paul has had a change in his life that has led to him having tremendous clarity for him. And he says, I'm not going backward. So I want us to think for a few minutes this morning about this idea of chasing two rabbits. And I want us to see how if we can have the clarity Paul has, it will bless us because it will help us order our lives the way Paul has. In fact, very often it seems to me that we struggle with the same problem, that we try to chase two rabbits. Whether we're talking about that just in the ordinary affairs of life, where we we talk about multitasking, which we try to do everything at once and we end up getting almost nothing done. Or we talk about having goals and commitments and we are so swallowed by our goals and commitments and so many quote-unquote priorities that we end up not really having any priorities or any goals. The clarity and the focus Paul gives will help sharpen us. So let's study this text for a few minutes this morning. The first thing we're going to say, don't chase self-righteousness and grace. Don't try to chase these two rabbits at the same time. Let's look at Paul thinking about the change that happened in him. He uses a phrase, confidence in the flesh. And that phrase, confidence in the flesh, describes the way he used to think about himself. Look back in verse 2 of Philippians 3. Philippians 3 and verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he warns about dogs, evildoers, mutilators. He's referring to that group of Jews that was going around teaching Gentiles they needed to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses in order to be right with God. He says, though, we, verse 3, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who worship God in the Spirit, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We would use, in place of a term like confidence in the flesh, we would use a term like self-righteousness. We, he says, are the people who are no longer looking to themselves as righteous. But Paul was not always this way. Look in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he says, I can go toe-to-toe with people who think this way. It's how I used to think. And the way Paul rattles off this list implies to me that he had done it before. In fact, we're going to see another place in the Bible where he does this, where he rattles off, this is what I used to be, this is who I used to think I was. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It reads like a resume, doesn't it? Here are my qualifications for why I think I could be confident in myself, why I would be declared righteous. I was born into a great observant family. They had me circumcised the eighth day, just like the law prescribed. Eighth day circumcision. He also says, I am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Jacob. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I can trace my line back to Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is the way Paul describes himself to other Jews. This is in Acts chapter 22 where he is defending himself in the temple when the Jews cause a ruckus and they're trying to arrest him, he addresses them and says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So he says, I'm from Jerusalem too. I'm not even a foreigner. Now, that is what some commentators believe he means when he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm from the native land, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Gamaliel was a famous Pharisee. 
and we read about him in the, the book of Acts. We'll read about him in coming weeks. Paul says, I was raised at his feet. I was educated by him. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death. It sounds very similar to what we just read in Philippians 3. This is the way Paul thinks about himself. He can rattle it off. Let me tell you about my line. Let me tell you about my family. Let me tell you about how I grew up. Let me tell you about my education. Let me tell you how serious I am about it. And for other Jews, they would have said, wow, this guy is a star. He also says, Back in our text in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I had a good conscience. Always tried to follow God's will. Nobody had anything they could say against me. But verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. This is an amazing resume. Paul is an amazingly devout man. And he had a lot to be confident about in himself. That's what he is saying. But when he sees Jesus, things change. When he sees Jesus on the road, suddenly he begins to realize that his confidence was in himself. He begins to realize that everything he had done was all about him. It was self-righteousness. And that caused a problem. He decided that the things that he thought were so great actually weren't worth much at all. That when you stack them all together, they don't amount to a hill of beans. And at the end of the day, he said, I wanted something better than just stuff I had created for myself. And so he says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I've reached a verdict about my past life. The verdict is that was all about me. It was my righteousness. And he says, I don't want it anymore. I want his righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. So Paul stopped having confidence in his flesh because he stopped chasing the rabbit of self-righteousness. He had God's approval through faith, through grace. And grace means that righteousness is given by God to the undeserving. It is not something I earn. That's an important shift for Paul. You might ask, well, why does it matter? What is the difference between self-righteousness and grace? Well, self-righteousness is all about me. In fact, it barely involves God at all. Did you read that resume? Look again at verse 5. Listen for God in it. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Where's God? Now, sure, God's behind the command for circumcision. Sure, God is behind the law he's describing. But is this about God? This is all about Paul. In fact, do you remember when Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee? He said he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteousness and treated others with contempt. Notice that. That's the heading to the parable. They trusted that they were righteous. And the Pharisee says, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Where's God in that prayer? Do you notice? He's right here at the beginning. 
and then the rest of it's all about me. Thank you, God, that I'm great. Thank you, God, that I'm not him. Thank you, God, that I do all this great stuff. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And, of course, that has some outgrowth in how we treat other people as well. I want you to notice the Pharisee says God's name, but God is not at all a part of his process. God's just the referee. God's there to say, hey, good job. You, you sure are doing great. Sure am proud to have you worshiping me. But really, it's not about God. It's not about pursuing God or knowing God. It's about me. It's about self-righteousness. Grace, though. Grace is about God. Grace is about God as the giver. God as the source. What God is choosing to do with us. I want to please God. But God is the one who is gracious to me. Now, please understand, we cannot confuse a focus on grace with the idea of laziness or complacency. That often happens in New Testament times because the New Testament writers warn about it very often. But Paul is not lazy. In fact, we're going to talk about in a minute how he is straining and pressing. This is not a lazy man. He is not complacent. He doesn't say, hey, I got grace. I'm just going to quit, put my feet up, and wait for Jesus. No, instead, Paul is going to get after it. He's going to strive for the mark. But he's not going to do it in order to have righteousness that he has earned. It's just not about him anymore. That's the shift that takes place in Paul. Now, you might be asking the question, all right, how do I know if I'm chasing two rabbits? you got self-righteousness and grace. This all sounds kind of theoretical. How would I know? I want you to ask yourself this question. How confident are you that you are right with God? What's the measure of your confidence? Are you sure that you're a child of God? If I have a hard time answering that question, if I come up with something like, well, I hope so, I may be chasing two rabbits. If I am not confident, it is probably because I'm focusing on what I am doing. In fact, if you prod that mentality where someone says, well, I hope so, and you say, well, why are you not confident? You will get the answer because I'm not sure I'm good enough. That, brethren, is self-righteousness. We are not good enough. But the good news of the gospel is, even when we're not good enough, God is willing to accept us because of his grace. So the question comes again. How confident are you that you are right with God? See, if I'm chasing self-righteousness, I'm always building the resume. I always have to have a stack of good deeds that I can look back on and say, well, I know God will accept me because I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And the more we add, the better we feel. But that's what Paul says he gave up. It's not about stacking good deeds together so that we can impress God and earn our way. Instead, when we chase grace, like Paul, we are liberated. We know we are not perfect. We know we are forgiven. Now we can move forward because God has given me something I could never have on my own. I don't have to be insecure about it. God gave it to me. I don't have to worry if I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. And the other thing, I have come to believe that self-righteousness is very deceptive. Do you notice in Paul's list there's no room for proud? There's no room for evil? 
what he calls himself in another place, an insolent man? There's no room in the self-righteousness list for sin because self-righteousness means we're not honest about our sin. we got to shove it in the corner and act like it doesn't exist because it would mess up our resume. The Pharisee that we talked about praying, he has no interest in sin. He doesn't want to hear about his sin. It's part of the reason they reject Jesus. When we're searching for self-righteousness, we minimize our sin. But when we chase after grace, it's okay. We can be open about our sin and we can let God heal our sin. I don't have to hide it from you or from God. Instead, I can turn away from it and be forgiven. Self-righteousness means I'm not confident because I know deep down I'm not good enough. But grace means God accepts me when I turn from my sin and I'm forgiven by him. Don't chase self-righteousness and grace. Second thing I want us to see here, don't chase the approval of others and Christ. What's the arena of self-righteousness? Where does it play out? It plays out in front of people. In fact, you can see some of the echoes of that in Paul's words. Look back in verse 2. He talks about look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Do you hear how there are others in the background of what Paul is saying? Other people who are threatening him, challenging him, and they're trying to brag about their good deeds. And so this resume is not just a statement of self-righteousness. It's a statement of how great he was going to be in the eyes of others to impress his fellow Jews. Paul was a rising star. And he has great respect from them. He has a great education. He has terrific zeal. He has a great background. And then he says, verse 7, look at verse 7 again. Then he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What a statement. I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul gave up his promising career in Judaism. And for what? What did he trade that for? This is what Jesus says to him before he's baptized, before he becomes a disciple of Jesus. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul said, sign me up. You wonder, well, what was Paul thinking? Is he some kind of masochist? Paul is thinking, I want Christ more than I want the approval or the money or the status that comes from people. And so Paul leaves behind a life of studying Torah with his people in the Jewish homeland so that he can live among Gentiles, so that he can get shipwrecked and thrown into prison and stoned and whipped. And especially, and I know this was painful for him, He is rejected by his own people vehemently. He is chased out of the very synagogues he grew up attending. He is opposed over and over again, nearly killed by them in the temple where he had gone to worship his God. They make an oath that they're going to kill him. They follow him all over to cause legal problems for him. Becoming a Christian meant Paul had to stop chasing their approval. And he did. Don't chase the approval of others and Christ. That's what Paul is saying. 
Look at verse 9. Philippians 3 and verse 9. And be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul was chasing was greater and better. He says, this is what I want. I don't care if they like me anymore. I don't care if I impress them. I don't want their applause I found something better. I want the approval of Christ. And when Christ approves, I know him. And through him, I know God. Who else can offer that? When Jesus approves, I know the power of his resurrection, which then applies to me personally because that's the same power that transforms me. And when Jesus approves, when I suffer, I'm only sharing his sufferings. Did you notice that in verse 10? That I may share his sufferings. He suffered before me. If I have his approval, I don't mind suffering. He's already shown me the way. And ultimately, if I have his approval, I have hope of the resurrection of the dead. That I too will be raised the way he was raised. So this is the way Paul talks about this. This is Galatians 1 and verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I still trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Don't chase two rabbits. Do you see it? If I was still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. But because I'm a servant of Christ, I don't try to please man. It's one or the other. No one can serve two masters. Don't chase two rabbits. Or he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I did not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's where Paul's heart is. Hey, you want to judge me? You don't think I'm doing a good job? You don't like me? That's a small thing to me. I gave that up. Trying to please everybody, trying to make everybody happy. I gave that up when I started serving Christ. He's the one who judges me. He's the one whose approval I seek. He's the one whose applause I want. So you can like me or not like me. That's not the rabbit I'm chasing. So you may be asking the question, well, how do I know if I'm chasing two rabbits? The approval of others and the approval of God. Here's the question. Am I ever tempted to compromise what I believe or what I do? For other people? Do I soften my language, tone down my views, change my behavior? Does it deeply upset me when others are unhappy with me or disagree with me? Do I do things that I'm not comfortable with just to appease people? How does their approval affect my behavior? That's the indicator of whether I'm trying to chase two rabbits. Seeking Christ's approval is going to mean that we're going to lose status and influence and money and opportunities, and it's still worth it. Let me just say on this point, it seems to me that we have a hard time with this as Christians in modern America, because somewhere along the way, we got the idea that if we play our cards right, we can have the approval of people and our broader society and God. That's just a, w- a way of, well, things just got to work out just so. Maybe if we're smart, we can make it work. I want to remind you, 
John says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's coming. That the world is fundamentally opposed to Christianity, even in America, everywhere. It seems to me that we have a really hard time swallowing the idea that the American society we live in might not love Christianity. Don't be surprised. Instead, what we need to do is find the freedom that Paul found in saying, I'm going to chase Christ. And if other people like it, fine. And if they don't, fine. I'm not chasing two rabbits, though. I can't please man and God. Paul found freedom in being found in Christ and knowing Christ. Chase that. Don't chase the approval of others. And the third thing I want us to see here is don't chase the past and the future. Paul has been talking about, at the end of verse 11, the, the resurrection, his goal. He's looking forward to the resurrection, and that's what I want to attain. Now look in verse 12 with me. Philippians 3 and verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm not resurrected yet. He says, I'm not perfect yet. Jesus isn't done with me yet. And he says there in verse 12, yet I press on. That is a great word. It is a hunting word and it is a running word. It is a word that means to chase something or run something down until you get it. So he says, I haven't attained it yet. I haven't caught it yet but I'm running after it. The word means to run fast. So Paul's race has changed. Did you notice? I used to run after one thing, now I run after another, but I'm still running and I'm gonna keep running. I'm not resting on my laurels because God's given me grace. I'm not resting on my laurels because I know Christ has approved. Instead, I run because I'm running toward a better future than my past. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So again, he says, I don't think of myself as having gotten there yet. Instead, I keep pushing toward it. One thing I do, he says, one rabbit I chase. I forget what's behind and I look forward to what's ahead. My eyes are on the future. Like Paul, like, like us, Paul has a lot of things in his past. A lot in the rearview mirror. And particularly here, he's talking about things that were good in the past, things he used to be proud of. And he says, I'm not looking backward anymore. That's behind me. I'm reaching forward. And I love this word in verse 13. It's the word straining forward, the very specific word. It also comes from running. I told you I like running. It is the word that means the runner is approaching the finish line and he puts all his energy into that last kick and he is straining. We would say he's straining for the tape. And I love that image because as you approach the finish line, you don't think about what's behind you. You don't think about all the miles you've covered and how hard it was. You don't think about the bad steps you took. All you're thinking about is I'm almost there. Forgetting what's behind. I reach forward, straining for what's ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on, I run hard toward the goal because I want the prize. Now Paul is describing in this text his continual pursuit of Christ. I'm not done. I keep going after him. That's his goal. 
And he strives for it. Every day he strives for it. I'm certain that every day Paul woke up wondering, how can I pursue Christ today? And the prize is not only the relationship with him, he says the upward call of God. It is the idea that someday we will be resurrected and we will spend eternity with him. It is the resurrection of our own lives. Verse 20, he says, look down at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is where our eyes are. Our citizenship is in heaven. So our eyes are focused on heaven because that's where the Savior we love is. And that's the place from which he will come and transform us into immortality. Don't chase the past and the future, forgetting what's behind. Reaching forward to what's ahead. You can't chase them both, can you? We have a really challenging relationship with the past. We sometimes struggle with the ghosts of our past, the regrets we have, mistakes of our past. Sometimes we wallow in the guilt of the past. Paul had that option, you know. But he said, no, I forget what's behind. And sometimes we have the opposite problem. That is, we struggle with living in the successes of the past. It's the good old days syndrome. You know, things used to be really great. I used to be really great. And so we say, well, that was a much better time, and I was in a much better place then than now. And so we stagnate in the present because we're living in the past. You know, Paul had that option too. He had a lot in his past that he could be proud of. But instead he says, I forget what's behind. When Paul says forgetting what's behind, he's not saying there's no place for memory or awareness of the past. He's saying, that's not the place we live. That's not the rabbit we chase. So how do I know if I'm chasing the past and the future? If I'm trying to chase two rabbits at the same time? Here's my question. Am I at peace with my choices? Am I at peace? Do I have peace with my past? The good and the bad of the past. Now, when I am forgiven of my sins, I don't have to wallow in the past. I don't have to wallow in what I have done in the past that I'm ashamed of, and I don't have to wallow in what has been done to me that, fair or unfair, I was a victim. I can leave that behind. I can be at peace. But when I don't have peace with the past when I'm always tearing off those old scabs and I'm always brooding over those old wounds or that old guilt, when I'm retelling over and over again, this is what happened to me, this is how bad they are for doing it to me, when I'm digging up things God has forgiven, I may be chasing two rabbits, chasing the future but also chasing the past. Or when I keep living in the past and re-experiencing my glory days, my past accomplishment, I may be chasing two rabbits. When I'm tempted to go back to old ways, what Paul calls rebuilding what I destroyed, or lapsing back into sin, or, or maybe imagining that I was happier before I became a Christian than I am after I became a Christian, I may be chasing two rabbits. Here is my point. There is a place for a healthy remembrance of the past, but Christian perspectives are set to future. That's what Paul's saying. Forget what's behind, strain forward to what's ahead. What's ahead will always be better than what's behind us. Whether that was good or bad, 
pretty or ugly, forget it and strain forward to the time when Jesus comes back, to the time when we are resurrected, and to the glory that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's passion has to do with the fact that he is constantly aware of something that we as Americans really like to forget. We are going to die. And the fact that we are going to die, Paul is always aware of it. In fact, I think he's probably really aware of it because it could happen any day when the wrong people got a hold of him. And so he says, my focus is always going to be on what happens after that. Will I attain to the resurrection of the dead and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? One thing I do, he says, one rabbit I chase. Look with me in verse 15. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says, live this way. He doesn't just say it so we can all be impressed with him. He says, that's the pattern. So don't chase self-righteousness and grace. Chase grace. Don't chase the approval of others in Christ. Chase Christ. Don't chase the past and the future. Look forward, straining, looking ahead to what God has prepared for us. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of Jesus. Jesus offers us these blessings, this relationship, this shifting of our priorities, and ultimately the hope of eternal life. And he offers that to us freely, not on the basis of us being good enough, not on us being perfect, but instead on the basis of his grace, something he freely gives to those who will submit to him and who will obey him. And it might be that you're ready to come to him And to turn away from your sins and to become a disciple of Jesus so that you can have his forgiveness and have that hope. And if you're ready this morning to be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, or if there's any way we can help you, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.